it's not about, you know, a desire to be rich. It's just a desire to be able to pay the bills and to not go into debt and to be able to make even the most minimal simchas for your family. These are not unreasonable things to want. And again, I, I don't have a solution. I don't know what a solution looks like, but I think trying to, you know, tell young people, you know, if you guys just cared enough, you'd be going to the field despite the fact that you won't be able to pay your bills. I, I, I think that's a non-starter. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. In the most recent issue of Jewish Action, Rachel Schwartzberg wrote an important article entitled The Great Teacher Shortage. In the article, she outlined the fundamental problem of day school teachers leaving the profession without an equal influx of new teachers starting out. She explained some of the reasons why this problem has become acute and some of the work that's being done to combat it. Because this article has generated a fair bit of discussion, I invited Rachel Schwartzberg and three veteran educators, Rabbi Moshe Simkovich, Olivia Friedman, and Rabbi Pesach Somer, to discuss the issues of teacher retention, the reasons that teachers leave, the reasons young people are reluctant to become teachers, and what we as a community can do to change this. Because if we truly believe that Chinuch is the essence of our community's uniqueness and the source of its strength, we dare not let the problem linger or even get worse. The problem is serious, and it must be addressed. One more important point before beginning our conversation. We had a very frank discussion about some of the problems that exist in many Jewish day schools and yeshivot. However, as the panelists made clear, they are often speaking about general experiences and experiences that were reported to them by other teachers, not necessarily in their own schools. Happily, it seems that many of the problems that we discuss openly are not problems that they have experienced personally. Rachel Schwartzberg, originally from Canada, works as a writer and editor and lives with her family in Memphis, Tennessee. She works full-time as a writer in the fundraising space and is a freelancer for Jewish publications on the side. Her work for Jewish Action has received Rockawar Awards presented by the American Jewish Press Association. Rabbi Moshe Simkovich has been a head of school, congregational rabbi, educational consultant, and educator in yeshivot and Jewish communities in the United States and Israel. Since the 1980s, he has been instrumental in the founding of a number of successful synagogues and Torah institutions, and he currently lives in the Chicago area. Olivia Friedman is a creative thinker with a penchant for literary analysis, pop culture, and Tanakh. She currently teaches Tanakh, Jewish law, and oral thought, and serves as an instructional technology coordinator at a modern Orthodox high school. Previously, she taught at Charles E. Smith Jewish Day School in Rockville, Maryland, where she developed the curriculum for a course comparing Western and Jewish thought on evaded issues such as mental health, LGBTQ plus issues, sexuality, media studies, and gender. Her articles have been published in Tablet Magazine, The Forward, The Times of Israel, Jewish Action, and Hypable. Rabbi Pesach Somer has been a mechanech for more than 20 years. He currently teaches at Ramaz. He's also the book review editor for the Jewish Press. He and his family live in Passaic, New Jersey. Rabbi Moshe Simkovich, Rachel Schwartzberg, Olivia Friedman, and Rabbi Pesach Somer, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Rachel, you wrote in Jewish Action, and I'm going to quote you right now, the Wall Street Journal reported that the rate of people quitting jobs in private educational services rose more than in any other industry in 2021, according to federal data. On the professional networking site LinkedIn, the number of teachers who began a new career increased by 62% last year. 
Within the Orthodox Jewish community, the challenge of teachers leaving the profession is compounded by a notable lack of people entering the field. This reality is affecting all types of Orthodox Jewish schools across North America, and the shortage of teachers is reaching crisis proportions. Can you give some additional details regarding what you found when writing your article about the teacher shortage crisis? Uh, Sure, I'd be happy to. So uh, I came across several points that seemed to be uh, near universal in the people I spoke to. Number one, first and foremost, and everything kind of kept coming back to this, is uh, teachers by and large in North America do not get paid enough to live comfortably a similar lifestyle to the children that they are teaching. A subcategory to that is that there is a massive pay disparity between what Rebeam and Moraz get paid that, first of all, is um, inconscionable, but secondly, creates, you know, very low morale among the women teachers. Uh, It's not a happy environment to be in, knowing that your peer teaching the same hours as you, same type as job, is getting paid more by the same institution. The next thing that I found is that it seems to be kind of universally accepted among the people I spoke to that teachers are not getting respect within the community. Um, which sort of piggybacks on the next point, the expectations of teachers are sky high and tend to cross the lines between professional and personal. If a teacher would call out a parent in the middle of a kiddish and say, your kid is disrupting, what can we do? It would be horrendous and they'd be fired. But if a parent would corner a teacher in the cheese aisle and say, you know, we got to figure this out, it's totally the norm and, you know, status quo. A next point was that teachers are working harder than ever, which sort of tied back to not getting paid a lot, tied back to not getting a lot of respect and tied back to the expectations, Uh, you know, differentiated learning, expectations in terms of posting homework online, expectations in terms of liaisoning with therapists, keeping track of kids taking meds, kids with hearing disabilities, kids with diabetes, kids with all these things in the same classroom. And the teacher is supposed to be on top of all that, which was maybe not the case 25, 30 years ago. So there's, you know, the word somebody used when I spoke to them was emotional labor involved in teaching, which just does not come along with other professions. And finally, um, another point that came up was that this sort of piggybacked off the pandemic is that teaching is a field that by nature requires a rigid in-person schedule. And that was something that the, especially the, the women that I spoke to um, said sort of became a, an untenable situation for a lot of them where in the past you kind of figured it out because everybody was leaving the house and going to work and there didn't seem to be an alternative. And now suddenly they're presented with a situation where, well, most of my peers are not going to work. And most of my peers, if their kid is sick, they can work from home that day. They can balance it. They can you know, figure out the solution. Whereas as a teacher, none of those options exist. You have to be in the classroom and it is your responsibility. So um, as one of the teachers I spoke, one of the former teachers I spoke to said, her sister-in-law who had an office job, it was annoying when a kid was sick. And for her, it was a catastrophe. Um, She just, there, she was completely stuck. So those were some major sort of themes that, that came up. And the one final piece I would say, which surprised me, I don't know if this was obvious to everyone else, but that there was a complete distinction between the teacher shortage problem 
in more Haredi schools and in more modern Orthodox centrist schools, which is that Haredi schools have no problem filling their Limudei Kodesh classes, but cannot get general studies teachers to, um, to fill the classes and stick around. <laughs> and centrist modern Orthodox and community schools, the problem is almost entirely in the Limudei Kodesh sector. They cannot find teachers or retain teachers to fill those positions. General studies is not the struggle. Okay, thank you, Rachel. Before I open it up to the rest of the panel, just a quick question. What has been the response to this article, which just came out? What has been the response so far to it? Um, well, I've never been invited to speak on a podcast before, <laughs> but <laughs> I am, um, I mean, I have had people reaching out to me on LinkedIn, on Facebook, by email, tons of people who have been, at, you know, everyone I've run into it every time I leave my house, um, telling me, you know, this is, you've hit on such an important topic and everyone seems to be passionate about this subject. I don't have a background in education. I'm a parent. So, you know, I've been involved in the Jewish day school education scene for the past, you know, 10 years, but as a parent, not as a professional. Um, and so, you know, I haven't been the address to hear these things before. And now suddenly I am, and everyone is passionate that, this is the number one problem. That is the number one problem. You know, people, everybody seems to have something to add to the discussion. What I have not heard is solid solutions that sound, um, that, you know, that sound to be like right on the mark. That might be difficult to come by. I guess we'll try today. Nonetheless, uh, you definitely have done a tremendous service. So thank you for writing that article and certainly opening up this discussion in ways that it hasn't been opened up as publicly beforehand. Let me open it up to the panel right now about some of the issues that you mentioned. Let's start off with the payment issue, because we really have a paradox over here. On the one hand, I think it's clear to everybody that teachers are underpaid. On the other hand, we all know that one of the major complaints about Orthodox Jewish life in the United States is the high cost of education. It seems almost impossible to raise teacher salaries without raising tuition significantly, which almost no one is willing to do. So let me throw this out to the panel members. Does anybody want to take this question? What can be done about the payment issue? Is there anything that we can at least throw out there as a possibility? Yes, Olivia. So I think that one of the most important things is that there needs to be salary transparency, which to my knowledge does not exist at any Orthodox Jewish school right now. And what I mean by that is when I taught at a pluralistic school, you were able to see that if you have a bachelor's plus a certain number of years of experience, or if you have a master's plus a certain number of years of experience, or if you have a PhD plus a certain number of years of experience, this is what you will make. And what that did was that incentivized people to go back to school in order to get more degrees because there would be an immediate pay raise and you could see exactly what it would be. And then there was a cap and that enabled you to plan your life. And it also made sure that we weren't breeding resentment because right now, when everyone gets to make their own unique special deal with the dean or with the principal about what they're going to earn, even if it actually is true that it is equivalent and maybe we are being paid the same per period, because that's not written anywhere, it's not in a contract, it's not transparent, what that does is it breeds resentment because it leaves people feeling like, how are the women getting paid versus the men? Or how are the people who have rabbinic degrees getting paid versus the women who might have double masters, but within this particular institution are not being encouraged to pursue maharat or some kind of rabbinic degree? And when you have an atmosphere where people have that situation of, of that resentment being bred, that's not going to be a culture and a climate that's going to be good for people. And on that note, um, I actually want to quote this piece from the article that Rachel wrote. 
she talked about Rabbi Schiffman describing the scenario where young women come back from seminary and take a teaching job at an entry-level salary. In most cases, the Mora is living at her parents' home, often taking college classes at night. She's getting professional experience while living comfortably. By contrast, most new Rabbeim only begin looking for teaching positions after spending some number of years learning in Kolel. At that point, they have a family to support. Because there are no post-high school yeshivot in Los Angeles, our candidates are not local, explains Rabbi Schiffman. Taking a job here means moving one's family to the West Coast. Despite having little to no training or experience, they're simply not going to do that. If they don't have a job lined up with a living wage, so in general, Rebaim get a better, a better deal. And that was just stated clear in the article. And I was astonished that the rabbi was willing to put that out there and not feel ashamed to say that. Because especially nowadays in a world where there is so much divorce, there are single mothers who are teaching and they may be the main breadwinners. And even as women who might be married and who might have a partner, who's to say that I, as the teacher, am not contributing more than my husband. So that kind of reasoning is objectionable. And I think that that's just a simple solution is the salary transparency. Now, what people often say is, well, if you do that, then what's to distinguish between two teachers who both have a master's and who have both been teaching six years, but one of them is putting in that extra effort to attend all the sports games and make a real connection with students and the other one isn't. And to that, I say, it's not that everyone gets to make their own special deal. It's that you come up with bonuses or incentives. There's a way to do this and not sacrifice transparency. I'll just point out that when I read that paragraph you cited by Rabbi Schiffman in the article, I thought he was actually bemoaning it and saying it's a problem because he also does say that salaries do need to be equitable and they're working towards that. Rabbi Sinkovich? I'll say this. 30 or 40 years ago, it seems like we were talking about the same things. And particularly in the case of women, they were getting uh, people who were equally prepared to teach classes were getting paid two thirds of what the men were getting paid. And it didn't matter where you were. It was in any school in the Jewish world. And to me, it's really like frustrating uh, and disappointing that none of that has changed. I know when I started a school over 20 years ago, we were one of the first to make sure that women who were trained in Talmud got parsonage. And we were one of the first to uh, make sure that higher degrees for women were paid the same as smicha for men, it hasn't caught on. And I think the reason is simple, cost money. And somebody will cut money wherever they can. The biggest opponent when I started, the, the school I started to creating these more equal policies was somebody on the board who was a woman who said, well, we just can't afford this. So we can't treat women equally. Now, you know, I don't know whether you know, solidarity here was called for, but I was a little surprised. Um, And I don't know how you get people to change the way they allocate their expenditures on a board unless they buy into the mission that Olivia is suggesting. And to buy into a mission that costs you money, you need really committed people. And I think the salesmanship has to be done to parents and board members, not even to administration, to enable this to happen. Because unless it comes from that level, it won't happen. Pesach, yes. Yeah, I I want to respond to one thing that Olivia said. I mean, obviously, um, total agreement that uh, there shouldn't be disparity based on, you know, if you have in between men and women who have similar abilities, granted 100%. But 
specifically, I'm just referring to the idea of sort of uh, a pay scale that's pretty much just across the board. Um, I did work in one such school, and it actually works against the school's benefit um, in the sense that, you know, you come in, you're at a certain amount, regardless how many years you've been in other places. I mean, they have a whole system without getting into specifically what it is. And the only way to make more money is to take on more and more responsibilities. And what happens over time is that their best teachers find jobs elsewhere where that's not the case. So in other words, you know, if, if I, I, you know, I get it within a school that, you know, and I, and hundred percent, I agree with Olivia that there is a sense of, you know, I wonder what so-and-so is making, wonder what deal they worked out. You know, do you feel like you're being, you know, in, in some sense, you know, you, you know, who, who's doing better for themselves and how they work it out. But in this particular school, because of the fact that it was, you know, they had their scale and that was it. Uh, again, you, you only made money by just working a lot more and just teachers had better options. And it just meant that, in many, many cases, their best teachers ended up going elsewhere where such a pay scale did not exist. One thing which I wonder about, and it's based on what Olivia said before in terms of the degree issue, is there a specific problem about the fact that getting smicha is, and let's be frank, some smichas are very, very difficult to get, and some smichas are a piece of cake. Either way, you have the title rabbi before your name. And I wonder if part of the problem is if we base salaries and salary transparency upon degrees and for a man to get smicha is frankly not such a big deal for many of them, but for a woman to get an equivalent degree, Rabbi Simkovich mentioned a master's degree, that might be much more difficult, for example, than getting smicha or Olivia mentioned maharat. Just the fact that the word rabbi generally in most Orthodox schools is not placed before women's names, whether we like it or not. Is that a problem as well in terms of the salary pay scale? Forgetting the theological or philosophical or any other issues, is that a problem with pay scale? Simply because a rabbi, by definition, has that higher degree, which a woman who might know more than he does, doesn't have by just not having that name. Olivia? So I think it depends a lot on the school and how sensitive they are to it and also how much they care. Um, at the school that I worked at, which was a pluralistic school, it was pretty clearly based on a bachelor's, master's, and doctorate to my remember as I remember it. I don't know if rabbis had a special parsonage uh, separate thing that was different from that, but it was pretty equivalent. So I think that there is a way to make it equivalent. One thing also is that it's important to consider what would go into a transparent pay scale because while degrees can be useful because you could go to school and get a degree and become an excellent teacher, they're not always useful. We've all seen teachers who are super intellectual and maybe they even have a doctorate, but they're not necessarily able to convey that enthusiasm or that passion or that information back to the children because that's a skill. And so that gets into, you need content knowledge, you need pedagogical ability and knowledge, and, uh, and you, need, you really need them both. And so while that's one model, there's definitely something to consider. It's more the transparency piece that I'm concerned about, less than exactly how the model is set up. I'm also concerned about another aspect, which it gets back to that paradox I mentioned before about raising tuition, but ultimately talking about the things that we value. When we pay teachers a minimum wage, a very low salary, we're basically telling them, we think that you're effectively interchangeable with anybody else. I could do your job just as well as you're doing it, which gets to the point you mentioned before, Rachel, about parents cornering teachers, which implicitly means they think they could do their job as well or better than the teachers doing it. And apart from the fact that these low wages indicate that we don't really value the job that teachers are doing, it also can drive away those teachers. One of the major points of your article is that people are having a difficult time staying in the educational field because they want to earn money, not 
to get rich necessarily, although there's nothing wrong with that, but just enough to pay for basic expenses. There was a very controversial line in that article, which I'm going to read right now, which a lot of people were really upset about, I saw online. And this is the issue of mission versus materialism. And the line reads as follows. To be a Jewish educator and to be successful, it must be a calling for the individual. One must have a mission. It must be his or her life passion. You can't be motivated by money to be in this field. Unfortunately, many in today's generation are focused on materialism and acquiring wealth. I'm not sure what can be done to redirect young people to think about pursuing careers in Jewish education. No matter how much we try to fill the financial gap, there will always be a gap. The sense of mission is key. This was said by Rabbi Dr. Tzvi Hirsch Weinreb, the uh, Emeritus Executive Vice President of the OU. And a lot of people were upset with that phrase, people are focused on materialism instead of mission. To me, that's, uh, it says something unfortunate. I don't, I'm not saying that he meant this necessarily, but the idea that somehow these are at odds, that if you actually want to earn a living wage and to be able to afford to take a vacation once a year, somehow you're missing the point of Chinuch. And to me, I, I think that might be problematic. Yes, Pesach? Um, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Rabbi Weinreb. I, I lived in Baltimore for five years. I used to uh, daven off and at his shul. Um, but I would still, I would invite him to go try to uh, fill his car up, up for gas and then pay with, um, with passion. Um, I've not yet found a, uh, a, a gas station that's willing to take it. Um, you know, in other words, again, like... I, 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 too, as you said, uh, saw a lot of uh, opposition to this on uh, social media. And, and again, it's, it's, it is, it's a very strange thing to set up as if, you know, in other words, again, if people were leaving the field because they wanted to be millionaires and, you know, they're just, you know, trying to, you know, get a third car and go on even more vacations on their private jet. So then we can talk about idealism, you know, but in other words, but teachers are just looking, you know, no, I, I don't think anyone in the field is saying, you know, we should be paid like, uh, you know, football players or baseball players or actors or whatever it is it's just you know we'd like to be able to afford to uh, you know commute to school we'd like to be able to send our children to camp we'd like to be able to not say no to our children on things we want to be able to, to you know that we feel are reasonable to say yes on um, it, it's not a question of passion I, I mean I, I think teachers um, you know I mean um, you know I've, I've known Olivia for a, for a, for a long time I and mean, she's one of the most passionate people I meet teacher uh, I've met uh, you know teachers are, are, are very very passionate by nature you don't make it in this field if you're not so I don't think it's a question of people not being passionate I think it's just that at, at a certain point it's not about you know a desire to be rich it's just a desire to be able to pay the bills and to not go into debt and to be able to make even the most minimal simchas for your family these are not unreasonable things to want. And again, I, I, I don't have a solution. I, I you know, I mean, um, at, at one point I, you know, I wrote something up on this on, on Facebook and Olivia said, you know, you should write, there's a, I forgot who it was, it maybe a look, Jed, someone was looking for papers on this. And I, I've often felt this way. I'm, I'm a great diagnostician. I'm, I'm much less good at coming up with cures. You know, I mean, I, I don't have a solution. Um, you know, you're hundred percent correct that, that, you know, I mean, the tuition, you know, crisis is is very much is is the other side of this and they're they're in opposition with each other and they're they're both at a breaking point so i don't know what a solution looks like but i think trying to you know tell young people you know if you guys just cared enough you'd be going to the field despite the fact that you won't be able to pay your bills i i, I think that's a non-starter 
I mean, Pesach, frankly, I'd go even a little bit further. I don't think there's any reason for anyone to be apologetic, even if they want to make more than just an okay wage. They want to make a decent living. There's nothing wrong with the teacher saying, I'd like to make a decent living and to be able to afford a vacation and not just to be able to pay my gas and to be able to pay with more than passion when I go to the gas tank. It may not happen because of those tuition issues, but there's nothing wrong. I don't think that's materialism to say I want to be able to have a normal life and to be able to pay for those things. And if we had that, maybe teachers would be less likely to be dropping out as much as they are. Rabbi Sinkovich? I think Rabbi Reinreb is not totally wrong about the mission thing. There's not going to be an inspiring teacher unless they feel that mission that's embedded in them to become a great teacher, that unless they can... If they can go sleep at night with unhappy children in their class without having a nightmare, then they shouldn't be teaching. They have to feel their mission is to teach and to do it well. On the other hand, I think this problem of correlating it to how a person gets paid, it's, it's just, um, it's not going to help to say, well, your mission should drive you. I remember... The first job I had as a teacher, they closed the high school that I was going to teach at the first week when I was supposed to start teaching with the excuse of, oh, well, we need the money for something else. And I threatened to sue them. And their response was, you sue us, you're taking the, the, the education out of the mouths of our children because we need the money for, and I said, better out of their mouths than my mouth. That board didn't get it. They just didn't get what they're doing. I think that, again, I know this is something I'm going to keep saying. We think the action might be between teachers and administrators so they get the idea. I think most administrators are sympathetic to what we think ought to be, but they can't do it without the money and they can't get the money without the board. And without getting the board on board, we're just going around in circles. And that's always been the biggest problem. Because everybody wants a bargain. They want great teachers at bottom level prices till they see that there's no way and their education is going to be inferior. We're just sort of knocking our heads against the wall. Olivia? I want to just say that um, it's not a conglomerate and that's part of what makes this tricky, right? You have yeshiva day schools, you have more to the right, more to the left, modern orthodox schools. So I don't want to name specific names. But I actually spoke to a number of teachers um, in preparation for this podcast just to ask them about, you know, if they left, why they left. And what I heard from some of the people I spoke to is that the schools that they were at were not giving them health insurance, a pension, life insurance, maternity leave, forget paid maternity leave. Um, Or there were schools that were doing shtick. We are going to employ you at a part time rate and we will make sure to never give you full time so that we will not be legally mandated to do these things. So um, one of the people that I spoke to told me that she was at a school where they used to pay the Judaic studies teachers before the secular studies teachers, right? They always paid eventually, but sometimes a day later than promised and sometimes 14 days later, too bad. My mortgage was always due on the same day every month. So that's one subset. Now, that's not the subset of the very elite modern Orthodox schools. Thank God most of those, they are paying teachers on time. And they are providing health insurance and a lot of those other benefits. So I think that that's another piece of this conversation is who are we talking about? Because people are having different experiences depending on the school at which they are employed. And we need to um, understand those different experiences people are having. For the people who are at the schools where maybe they are getting some of these benefits, 
then that becomes a whole other issue. Who is leaving and why are they leaving? And so just from speaking to people, I saw multiple categories. I saw young teachers who were not receiving the proper investment and cultivation and mentorship that was needed to enable them to be successful and having one program like JNTP and outsourcing to them as wonderful as they may be is not sufficient. They need hands-on mentorship that's happening in the school because- What is JNTP? That's um, just one of uh, the programs that's like the most famous in terms of offering uh, mentorship and guidance. It trains veteran teachers within schools to provide mentorship to beginning teacher colleagues through their most challenging first years, the Jewish New Teacher Project, right? But you can't assume that that is the one solution for everyone and everything. So that's one group of people, the ones who are um, you know, not mentored and are not being cultivated or are, are not necessarily doing well in their probationary period. And Pesach actually spoke about this. Maybe Pesach can say more about how teachers need to be cultivated in order to grow and to grow into what they're able to do. So that's one group. But then I spoke to another group of people and some of the reasons that they were transitioning out of education, first of all, they weren't necessarily transitioning out of Jewish education as a whole. They were transitioning out of classroom education but they were still planning to be involved in organizations that would promote um, curriculum design for Jewish you know, people or adult education, right? There were a lot of ways that they were still planning to be involved, but they talked about within their schools, uh, not being given opportunities to lead and a lack of ability to grow, whether that would be within the classroom or into administrative roles. So I think that it's just very important to realize there are different segments of the population who are having very different experiences. And the person who's leaving because they're not getting paid on time is different from the person who's leaving because they want to have an opportunity to lead and they're not getting it. And that's different from the person who's leaving who is within their first three years and simply hasn't been mentored appropriately. So we have to dig down much deeper in order to provide the proper interventions for each of those different groups of people. Olivia, those are a lot of good points. Yes, Rachel? Um, so I wanted to just sort of say something quick on the uh, Rabbi Weinreb point, which is in my research, I found that people are not even developing the mission-driven sense to become teachers because it is so early on in the educational process that they're hearing, this is really hard work and it's not for you. Like 12th graders are not wanting to go into teaching and then going through the process and saying, I can't afford it. You know, the teenagers who used to say, I want to be a Moro when I grow up are not happening. So, um, you know, it's, it's going farther back because they're hearing from a much younger age, you can't earn a living that way. Forget that, go into speech therapy, go into occupational therapy, go into accounting, get a CPA, you know. So it, it isn't waiting for the mission-driven people to say, gosh, I can't do this. They're not even bubbling up to the top in the first place because they're hearing the message so early on, you can't, you know, that's not a tenable lifestyle. But then I'd like to also just mention quickly to Olivia, that in my research, there was something I spoke to, I was not allowed to quote this, but um, Torah Masora, as just one example, is really looking right now at how we can, how they can set up a mentorship sort of rubric, um, you know, within schools, with funding, different ways that they can look at it so that new teachers would be getting better training, better on the job support, sort of being stood up in a more substantial way, as opposed to what feels like now being sort of thrown into the classroom and hoping for the best. And um, the people at Azraeli and Stern also highlighted that as a very significant area of focus of how to make sure that 
mentorship and sort of the support for early teachers is there so that they can at least have every opportunity to succeed within their chosen field. Pesach? That's an interesting area where I think the, the difference between men and women are actually the advantages for women is that, um, you know, in general, my, my sense is that women who go through Azraeli or who go through other programs are generally getting actual classroom hours before they start teaching. They get, you know, some sort of mentorship. They get some sort of experience with somebody helping them in the classroom. Um, unless Azraeli's changed in, in, you know, more recent years, um, you take whatever classes you take, which, you know, can be helpful or can be theoretical or whatever, whatever it is. Um, but again, I, m- my sense is that the vast majority of men I know who go into uh, teaching, um, the first time they ever are in a classroom is, is when they have a classroom to themselves, never having been trained for it. And I, I, I think that's, that, that's very, you know, it's a difficult spot. I mean, you know, Olivia mentioned that I said something about this. Um, you know, I've been teaching now for 20 years. I, I think I'm doing fairly well, you know, but I, it, it occurred to me that I think really when, you know, my, my first five years was very up and down. I started off in a small out of town school where, you know, okay, you know, you're Jewish and you know, some Hebrew, um, go teach, you know, and, and, you know, that's, that's a pretty low expectation, but other times, you know, you're, you're sort of going in there and you just, you know, I don't know, like I was a good NCSY advisor. So I think I want to teach or I like learning. I've been in Colel and, you know, I'm not really sure what else to do. I think I'd like to teach. And there's, you know, there's never really a sense of like, can you handle classroom teaching? What is your experience working with kids of this age? And it's this very fine line because some people who, some, you know, some people who go into it ultimately discover that they, you know, with either training or just with enough trial and error, they figure it out like I did. Or other times people figure out like, well, yeah, I, I love Gamara, but I don't really love teaching kids Gamara. I don't know how to teach kids Gamara. Or, or, you know, like, you know, being an NCSY advisor was really cool. You know, I came in for the weekend, acted whatever, you know, did my role and then I went back. But now I actually have to do this every day. So I, I think one of the big, you know, disadvantages on the guy side is that you really they're not really being prepared at all to go into the classroom and it's incredibly hit or miss. And then you throw in that many schools don't have any sort of support once you're thrown in. It's not a design that's going to work very well. Robert Sinkovich? Yeah, I, I elaborate a little bit on what uh, Pesach has been saying here is that I've mentored in both uh, yeshivish or Haredi schools and also in more modern Orthodox or centrist Orthodox. The attitude towards my coming in and mentoring in the yeshivish places was, well, yeah, see if you can help the rabbayim, they're new to it, but essentially give them a couple of years and we'll see if they sink or swim. As far as the limure chol or general studies or whatever you want to call it, it was more negative than that. It's like, well, okay, do it because we're supposed to do it. I actually got the feeling that they don't want them to be that good as teachers, because if they would, it would be a Yetzirah, maybe somebody will be attracted into what they're selling there in the general studies side. Um, And to try and help teachers under those circumstances was totally up to the teacher, but not, you know, many, many of the teachers of general studies in these schools are Rebbeim who are just trying to fill out their job because they're not making enough for the morning. I actually had one class where I was advising a teacher teaching math who would bring the homework to his wife at night so that she could grade it because he couldn't. That's outrageous. On the other hand, in sort of modern Orthodox, centrist Orthodox schools too, there there is much more of a, a willingness to help. And yet 
there, the idea of finding yourself working in the mission, I think, is, is a lot more complicated because your job is seen a little bit as educational if you're in Limure College, but also a little bit as Kiruv. And you're supposed to be doing both at the same time. And that means that your mind has to be working on multiple levels, no matter what you're doing, no matter what technology you have, no matter what your personal interests are. And that's so demanding and demands a lot. Um, and in the general studies, to see that you're trying to make a holistic person out of a student and get the two things to work together, the Kodesh and the general study, so that they both have a, a one person that you're trying to develop, there's hardly any time for that. And to have a school focused on that is a real challenge that hasn't really been overcome. So if you're talking about the problems of teachers um, lasting in the system, you have the goals of the system, you have the sipuk, the, the need for the teacher to feel satisfied, and then you just need the subsistence to make it work. There's so many demands that we're just not prepared for it on the general studies with the CODIS side. There was a point Rabbi Simkovich made that I think is important to elaborate on, and that has to do with who is getting hired to teach at modern Orthodox schools. So I think that there is a divide between if you're on the East Coast, where there's many different schools, and if you're unhappy at one, maybe you can go apply and teach somewhere else, and teaching anywhere that isn't the East Coast, like what we might want to call out of town. And here's what I mean by that. There are typically... Uh, different strands of schools available in out-of-town communities. You're going to have one that's a little bit more to the right, and then you'll maybe have one that's more modern Orthodox style. And there's usually a pay gap between those, which might mean that the people who are teaching at modern Orthodox schools, especially out of town, may not necessarily religiously fully identify with that belief system. However, they will do that because that is where they are going to earn the highest salary if they are capable. And it's a problem because if they're unhappy for whatever reason at that school, let's say it's not working for them in terms of the culture of the school, or there's any kind of uh, friction between them and their administration, they can't really leave to go somewhere else because there aren't other options that will pay them equivalently. So one of the things that I see happen pretty often is where people might be teaching at a certain school because that's where they can earn the highest wage because that's the school that will pay the highest. But if you look at where they're sending their kids, they may not be sending their kids to that school because hashkathically, that's not really where they belong. And where that creates some interesting issues is A, who is this person in the classroom? Are they actually a dugma'i sheet for the children? Like, do they believe what it is that the school is trying to get the students to believe? And B, sometimes schools take a tuition remission approach in terms of trying to make the salaries work better for teachers. And they say, oh, we'll give you tuition remission for your children. Well, the issue is that hashkafically speaking, uh, you probably may not send your children to that school because there is that mismatch, right? I'm teaching here because this is where I can get the best salary, but hashkafically, this is not actually where I align. So I'm not sure what to do about that in terms of solving it as an entire problem, but I want to make you aware that that is something that happens because I think that that plays into everything else. It's another layer. I am glad you mentioned that, Olivia, because I actually, when I used to recruit for my yeshiva, and perhaps this is unfair and is purely anecdotal, but when I'd go into schools that 
it was clear the teachers were not in the same hushkafic place as the school's official philosophy or as the student body, perhaps. I usually found it to be a problem. Just it seemed to me that there was an educational gap over there that was not necessarily being bridged, that the kids were not getting everything they could. They lacked the models and the role models that really they should have been having because there might have been a teacher from, for example, a Lakewood-type place, and the school is a left-wing, modern, orthodox school. It doesn't mean that that teacher can't be a fantastic teacher and can't be a role model. But when the school, as a matter of course, is hiring teachers, all of whom are from that Lakewood model, but the student body is simply not there, they're teaching them something which the students aren't willing to accept. I actually, though, want to go back to the other thing you mentioned, and you also referred to it a few minutes ago, about tuition remission. And this goes back to get back to what we talked about initially, and I want to ask Rachel this question, if she in her research saw anything about this, about the salary being too low. One of the counter arguments might be, yes, indeed, teachers are not paid enough. However, you have to look at some of the benefits, such as, and the most obvious one is, tuition remission. Let's say a teacher has a number of kids who go to the school, not like you're saying, Olivia, let's say they actually do attend the school. Well, tuition is so high, as we mentioned, that alone just sending four kids to the school, if they get more than 50% off, that might move their salary into a level that is actually very respectable. So Rachel, did you hear anything about that in your research in terms of perhaps a counterbalance to the idea that teachers don't get paid enough? I for sure did. (laughs) One thing that came up is a, um, as Olivia pointed out earlier, a lack of transparency in the tuition remission model. Uh, Definitely everybody pointed to it. I got the sense that teachers um, maybe who are used to getting a tuition remission do not appreciate how much tuition costs for the average parent. You know, and at the end of the day, when I make X and I pay X tuition and you make X and don't pay X tuition, we actually, you know, our, our spending money is the same, but they don't necessarily, you know, they're not used to looking at it that way and they don't see it that way. They just see my take-home pay is less. Um, because they do, you know the, you don't see somebody else's bills, so I kind of got the impression that that is not an appreciated value in many places. But uh, I'll just point out um, my conversation with Ahuba Heyman, who's the uh, school director of Benosi Stral in Baltimore. Um, she is a powerhouse of a woman, um, and I think she'll do you know even more amazing things than it sounds like she's done. But one thing that she that she mentioned was that they you know, have committed to raising salaries. And she said to me, when the teacher salaries are raised, they will be making the equivalent of $120,000 a year, but they're only working eight or nine or 10 months a year. And most of them choose to work part-time, not because there's no option, because that is where they wanna be. So they're not making $120,000 a year, but they're making you know, the equivalent when it's put on an hourly basis. She said, they're getting tuition remission based on how many hours they work. So part-time gets X, full-time gets much more up to, I think she said 90% tuition remission. She also pointed out that teachers get 37 paid days off in her school, which is the Chagim, the winter break, you know, all those things that, that essentially align with either your kid's school schedule or your Jewish like observance schedule. She said, on top of that, they're getting personal days that they can take when they need it. Um, So she said, you know, once you look at that and the salaries are raised and they're now starting uh, retirement savings plan, you know, she said they've started a 403B plan for their teachers. She said, it's a really sweet deal that people aren't looking at in that way. You know, and I actually, you know, I mentioned to you 
Scott, that freelance writing is my side gig. I have a full-time job, you know, and I use all my vacation time for the Chagim. So it sounds pretty nice to me to be given off as paid time off for the Chagim. I know I'm not saying that's making the field of teaching the most amazing place to be given all these other challenges, but a lot of these things I think are underappreciated and tuition remission falls into those categories of a very significant benefit potentially. Yeah, so I guess there's a lot to, to say to that. I mean, first of all, um, you know, tuition remission, um, I, I'd have to imagine would be wonderful. Um, I've never been in a situation where I've been able to do it. It could be anything. I mean, Olivia mentioned Hashkafa, and, you know, one can talk about, you know, I certainly agree with you that you should not have a non-Orthodox school where every single one of the Rebbeim are from Lakewood. On the other hand, I, I think one of the positive things that there's value in, in non-Orthodoxy is that not every teacher of limited Kodesh is coming from the same team. I think that, um, that, that uh, that's a certain weakness, I think, in, in the yeshivish model that you basically only see one flavor and it's either this or nothing. But there's a lot more than that. I mean, again, you know, if you live in a, you know, again, I've, I've lived both, as Olivia, you know, said, out of town and, uh, you know, now in town for a while. So if you live in a community where, you know, where you're working, it's the school there, or the school you're, is aligned with your child, you know, with your family's tashkafa and with your children's educational needs and, you know, and, and, and location. In other words, again, just the very fact that, you know, I mean, um, you know, I drive an hour into the city every day in order to get to, to my job, which I love, but, you know, d- is it reasonable for me to say, well, you know, okay, in order to, you know, get this teacher admission, I'm going to start, you know, schlepping my uh, five-year-old, my eight-year-old, my, you know, I mean, uh, whatever year old to that school, um, that, that often just doesn't work out. In other words, yeah, it's great. If, you know, I, I did live in Baltimore and the schools are local and, I, I, if I remember correctly, I think there was even some sense that you could send to the different schools and they would still all work together. Um, but that's far from from the norm. So in other words, where that works out, that's wonderful. But I think that that's um, very, very far from being a given. Uh, so I, I think that's a that, that's a big thing to say in terms of pushback to that. I mean, where it can work. Um, I don't think it should be ignored. And, and, you know, yes, in other words, again, it's not just, you know, what's the number on the paycheck, but how much money in the end, what are you, you know, what, what are you paying for your children's education, everything like that. Um, but it's, it's, it's far from being something that can be implemented in every situation. Rabbi Sinkovich? Okay, I'll just say two things along these lines and be quiet about how I began teaching and how I stayed in it was when I began teaching. So my first 18 years, uh, aside from a couple of them, were in Boston. And second year I was there, Rob Salvechik got up at a dinner and said, okay, our board decided that it's important to keep our teachers across the whole school, everybody's getting a 10% raise. So I, you know, I was floored because the reason I had left the school before on the West Coast was the raise that was offered to me there was $150. Even in 1980-whatever, that wasn't worth much. Um, And secondly, on the other hand, this thing about uh, helping teachers with different things, with the tuition, with their rent, with their uh, ability to buy a house, things like that, really do make a difference in retaining a teacher. And in Boston, they did work at that time to do those things. I don't know if they still do or not, but it made a difference. And the, if I wanted to draw teachers to something out of town, I think I couldn't run a school and get the teachers I wanted unless I ran some sort of a deal to bring in the Rebbeim who fit what I want to be 
unless I offered them some way to get a house, to get a, whether the school retains ownership of the house and just gives it to them at a discount or for free, or whether it finds a way to help them buy a house, whatever, however it works it out. Without it, there's so many reasons not to move. I wonder if having someone of the stature of Avsolovechik is the only way that a school could say, we're now going to raise salaries by 10% because when Rav Salvechik goes and says, I need the board to raise that extra money, perhaps he has the ability to do it, whereas other people might not. You know, I don't know how many people we had to beat up to get that done. <laughs> Olivia? Yeah, I wanted to touch on both uh, Rabbi Pesach Somers and uh, Rabbi Simkovich's points. So Rabbi, Rabbi Somer pointed out that there can be issues if um, tuition remission is part of your model for your specific school, whether it's because of distance whether it's because of hashkafa. Another one I want to put out there is that your child may have unique needs, whether that's a learning difference or something else. And the particular school that you may work at may not be able to meet those needs well. So it's all very nice in theory. It's not always so useful in practice. Now, where we can get creative, and I love that Rabbi Simkovich touched on this because this is a very solution-focused model, is, is that we can get creative in a number of areas, right? One of them is, and this is something that um, does happen, in some areas, you know, we agree as a consortium that no, if your child is being sent to any of these Jewish day schools, they will get, you know, 25% off tuition if you're a day school teacher, let's say, so that you do have some choice and you're not stuck at only the one school you work at, right? So that's one possibility. But the other one, and I think this is bigger that he talked about in terms of uh, helping to pay for a house or figuring out communal roles for people. So I spoke to several different women, and I just want to stress this that some of the star teachers who are leaving elite modern Orthodox schools, they're not leaving for the same reasons that have been discussed here in terms of uh, you know, not getting paid on time or so on. They are leading, leaving uh, because there is not a path for them to grow and to lead. And there's only a finite amount of leadership positions in the school, yes, but it would be really good for schools to be committed to promoting from within and training people up from within rather than trying to hire you know, talent from outside because that, that's a model. Another thing is that if someone comes to you and says, I want to have a path to leadership and for whatever reason, there isn't a role for them, can you create a role? Can you figure out a public facing communal role? Because teachers are more than just people who spend time in schools. Teachers are often embedded in the community and that can be bad because it means that in the cheese aisle, someone is talking to you about their kid and ranting at you. But it can also be really good because it means that even when you're at shul or if you're involved in public lectures for the community, you are a presence. And there are really good ways to get creative to figure out what teachers want. There was this one quote that someone said to me, and I thought it was very important. It's a mistake to think that people are only price tags. There is often something people would want that might not cost money. But in order to figure that out, the administrators would actually have to know their people. So as an example, when I first worked, I had a, an internship in a corporate um, in the corporate world as a, as a teen, and they, they, they gave me a predictive index profile. It's called PI. And they figured out my leadership style. They figured out my management style. They figured out how I should be managed. They figured out all that information. Then they gave it to my manager. And so mine was very much like, she needs to be autonomous. You need to just let her fly. Like, that's her style, right? So... None of that has ever happened at a school that I've worked at, and I don't know why. That's a very simple thing to do. Have all the teachers take, you know, PI or a personality test or whatever. Give that information to the managers. Let them understand their people. You could even talk to them, you know, the five love languages is a book. There's actually the five love languages in the workplace. That's another concept. 
I could be very straight with my people who are in charge of me and say, you know what I like? I really like words of affirmation. And someone else will say, you know what I really like? I really like acts of service. And there are things that you can do to build culture in your school beyond the money by knowing each of your people and knowing what makes them tick. Um, Another thing that I heard was that in uh, the corporate world, sometimes people will say to their employees, the minute someone comes and tries to poach you, let me know because I want you to stay. Right. You that's that there's that investment piece that has not been said to me. And in fact, I've heard stories from other people where when they came to the school and they said, I got a counter offer, the school said, oh, best of luck. Right. They didn't even try. Now, maybe they couldn't match the money. It's possible they couldn't match the money, but they could say, look, you're a star teacher. We love you. We want you to stay. What could we do to make you stay? How can we get creative? You know, would it help if we you know, uh, to whatever extent they could. Maybe they could do the thing with the housing. Maybe they could help uh, send the person back to school and pay for part of their their degree. Maybe there's something else. But it's that creativity piece that I think some of the elite, you know, MODOC schools could work harder on. First of all, you know, something I've struggled with for a very long time um, is is the fact that at, at a certain point as a teacher, you sort of reach the level where like, okay, we've you know, we've raised your pay a little bit and maybe we're going to use more responsibilities, but basically your only way up now is administration. Um, and and I, I, it just continues to strike me as odd. I mean, I know uh, you're a baseball fan. I don't know if anybody else here is, but, you know, in other words, like the idea that like, well, you're a good shortstop, so we'll pay you more. Now you're an elite shortstop. So would you like to be the manager or the general manager? I mean, it just, when we talk about passion, I love being in the classroom. You know, there, yeah, in a sure, there are times I wonder, you know, as an administrator, as a, you know, running a school, what could that look like or whatever it is. But I'm saying, but at the end of the day, I, I love being with kids. And the idea that sort of, you know, that I'm either going to have to, you know, reach a certain pay ceiling um, and just live with that for the rest of my life or stop working with kids in order to make money just strikes me as incredibly odd. In other words, you would, you know, you would, you would think that you'd want your best players to stay on the field. And um, right now that that's, that's not so possible. Um, I also, I, I mean, I, I love the idea of what Olivia is saying in terms of also about like really recognizing that it's not all about necessarily making more money for teachers or at least just making it more for doing the same thing, but in terms of, really discovering, well, yeah, what is it that makes you tick? And what is it that would make you happy? And what do you think you can bring here that, you know, would really make you happier being here? I mean, one of the things that I um, love about my job, and again, you know, I want to make this very clear. I mean, um, you know, I'm not here to complain about my, my current job. I mean, in terms of so many things, I'm, I'm incredibly happy there. But one of the things that really, I, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not exaggerating when I say changed my life is that um, I was invited to give uh, a, a Hashkafa class, started teaching Hashkafa for eighth grade four years ago, a once a week class where I get to really engage in my deepest passion in terms of my Jewish learning, in terms of bringing things to the classroom. And again, it's three periods a week out of 20 something periods that I teach, but it just, it completely changes my experience as a teacher because I'm, I'm not just being told, okay, here's where we need you and you're going to teach this and you're going to teach this. But we know you you love this. We think that you have the ability to do this. We think this would be valuable for our students. Let's let's fill that in. And I so I, I really love this idea that Olivia is saying for it, administrators to really know what makes the teachers tick and what would make them happy in other ways. Because again, you know, it, some of it really is about passion. And if you can if you can feed that in other ways the financial uh, challenges will be more bearable. 
Okay, we're almost out of time, so I want to make a couple more points and throw it out to you. The first one, just in terms of what we talked about maybe 10 minutes ago when Rachel mentioned with good justification that people can look at what a teacher is getting in terms of the extras, particularly time off. You get two months off in the summer and say, wow, sweet deal. On the other hand, someone might say, that's great, but I don't want that time off. I'd rather be working and making money. So yeah, that's great. I get time off, but unless I get a job at a camp, and most people don't get those jobs, this time off isn't particularly helpful from a financial perspective. Anyway, the first of the two points I want to mention goes back to this idea we're talking now about promotions. And even though, yes, Olivia and Pesach, you're talking about the possibility of giving people promotions that aren't specifically in the realm of higher pay or necessarily in the administrative role. But at the same time, I wonder if this is an issue because in some places it certainly is. And that's the question of protexia, meaning there are certain people who are insiders, let's say, and they're the ones who are going to get those coveted administrative jobs that pay more and have more power, quote unquote. And I don't know if that's true in schools in general in the United States. I certainly know that it's sometimes true in yeshivot in Israel, not always, but in some places. And I wanted to know if that's part of the problem as well in your experience from how you see this. In other words, are some people getting the promotions and other teachers who are fantastic teachers and who would like to be promoted they're not going to get that promotion, and they say, fine, I'm out of here because I'm never going to be able to rise to a higher position. Yes, Pesach? Yeah, so you know, I, I think one of the areas where that really comes up, and um, I'm not going to name any schools or anything like that, but as, you know, particularly for women, is that you know, I, I, I would almost compare it to what happens in, in Hollywood where you know, young you know, uh, women you know, actresses, young female actresses have a lot of roles. And then as they age and they sort of age out of a certain image that they're supposed to have, um, the, the roles become much, uh, much more narrow. And I, my, my strong sense for a lot of reasons that I can't name is that schools now you know, you sort of either get in as like a, a, when you're still young enough as a woman and you're cool and you're dynamic. And once you reach a certain age, um, that's no longer, you know, you no, even if your personality is still that, I mean, that's the thing, it's not really about, uh, I mean, anybody knows it's not about age there. I've, I've known, I've had colleagues who've been in their sixties and seventies who can still inspire kids. And I've known, you know, 30 year old teachers who could not, but particularly for women, my very strong sense is that like once you reach a certain age and you're no longer, you know, seen as someone who's going to sit on the floor during the kumzits and sing, sing with the girls or something like that. Well, you know, we're very sorry. We know you've done a lot, but, um, you're, you're no longer really, you're not getting promoted beyond what you are. And we'll, we'll look for that superstar, you know, uh, 35-year-old woman somewhere else rather than the woman who's been here in the school for 15, 20 years. Um, I think that's a very, very, very big problem. And it just, it's, it's very, it has to be very dispiriting, you know, that, that you sort of, you give your life to a particular institution and then you're just sort of told like, you know, yeah, we like you and we appreciate what you are and we'll let you stay here forever. But like you've, uh, You've, you've aged out of, uh, or, or you've cooled out of, you know, the being qualified for anything moving up. There's, the, there is this very strange sense of sort of like, right, that we have to find a superstar for a position and almost definitionally, that means looking somewhere else. And, and, you know, and even on the, on the, on the Rebbe side, there's, a, there's a lot of that, that goes on that they're just sort of, you know, certain people who were seen. And, and again, I, I, I'm not even, <laughs> honestly, sometimes I'm not even sure what, what it's about other, you know, being cool, you know, they're great in camp or someone on the board, you know, their child, you know, knows it. it, it it's, it's not really being done with great education in mind. There's, there, there definitely is a certain coolness factor that if you're, you know, cool enough and popular enough and you, you know, run a sports camp or something like that, then we're going to overpay for you to come in um, regardless of what you're like as a teacher. So, 
there really is this this sort of and 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 I think this a little bit comes back to what Olivia was saying before in terms of you know the lack of transparency, but it, but it, it really does create this sort of resentment in terms of again you know you give your best years to a place and then there's just you know they they just decide that there's someone cooler younger more popular who's uh who's going to be look better on the brochures and you you miss out olivia yeah i think there are two points one is charisma versus competence two is women in general so for charisma versus competence like i said i spoke to several people before appearing on this podcast and some of them said that they feel like what they see in terms of hiring for administrators, and obviously it depends on the role, not necessarily everywhere, is that there's a certain type of personality that's being looked for. And often it's this extremely charismatic, I think that's what um, Paysoft was referring to as well, with the coolness factor and so on, individual. And the question is, but is that person competent? Can they actually do the job that they're being asked to do? And sometimes the answer is yes, and they've got both qualities. And sometimes the answer is no. And so I've spoken to some people where they feel like I was passed over for this promotion, which fine, if it was a better candidate than me, I understand. But this person who got hired has way less experience than me, isn't necessarily a competent teacher, but now they're coming in and I'm supposed to respect them as my administrator. How's that going to work? Like, you know, it's they're very charismatic. That's great. But how does that work in terms of the educational piece? So that can breed resentment. And then for women in general, this quote that one of the people I talked to said, she said, look, lots of women are happy to work part time and because of family work balance don't want more. But that's not everyone. Look at the ratio of 35 year old male administrators to women. If men are becoming assistant principals and being trusted to grow in the position at 30, that means they're moving to principal jobs at 35 and heads of school at 40. Women are maybe getting assistant principal jobs, maybe. And that's usually in all girls schools and not even co-ed at 35 or at least five years later. They're still competing with younger male applicants. They can never catch up with the principal and head of school pipeline. So you will never have a gender balance in Jewish educational leadership. And I think that this is a big thing because yes, there may be women who are department chairs and that's great, but administration really calls the shots. That's the higher echelon in the school. And if you don't have women in those positions, or if you have very part-time women in those positions, there is a gap. There's a gap in terms of who your people can feel like they can talk to. There's a gap in terms of role models. There's a gap just in many areas. And so I'm not saying hire someone solely because they're a woman, but look at the makeup of admin. And if there are no or very few women, something to actively change. Just one thing I feel is sort of missing in our discussion. I don't even know how to think about this, but... We're talking about teachers and administration and boards. Um, as far as students go, I don't know how they take all this in. They're watching us go through all this. And I wonder what their awareness, their consciousness is of what we are doing with them. And do they grow because we do it? Do they feel that there would be a solution that maybe we're not even noticing because we don't talk to them? And I would, you know, almost love for you to do something like this with four students and see what they think, because they're actually the ones who are supposed to be working on and for, and they watch us all the time and they're smart, maybe sometimes too smart, but smart. And I think we could learn something from them. That's a really good point. You know, Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz, when I had him on this podcast about a year ago talking about Gemara, he said, people ask, why 
do you want to be a teacher? And everyone knows the wrong answer is because I love learning. People think the right answer is because I love teaching. And he said, I thought that was a very astute point, which gets to what you're saying right now, Rabbi Sinkovich. The reason you should be a teacher is because you love watching students learn. And uh, given that idea, I think uh, you really are hitting the nail on the head when it comes to that. One final question. I know we're, we're over time right now, but I want to ask about the problem of burnout. When we talk about teacher retention, burnout has to be an issue. When I speak about my own teaching experience, by the time my yeshiva closed, I was burned out completely. I was happy to leave the teaching profession. And having spoken to many people, I know that it's very common that people in their 40s and 50s, just they've had it. They don't want to do it anymore. So number one, I guess I'll ask Rachel if that is a problem that you saw in your research. And I'll ask the other panel members if that is something which can be combated in a normal way. Do you have any specific strategies you could, you could suggest of how to overcome it? I did encounter people talking about burnout. Um, a lot of the suggestions or ideas that it was tied to were things that we've discussed, you know, which is like a path forward, uh, a way of growing that burnout kind of comes alongside that, where I feel like I've been in the same classroom doing the same thing. I'm not growing as a person. The work is getting harder. The expectations are kind of more extreme. And it was all sort of tied up in a, in a bundle of what I was, um, what I was hearing that burnout was real and it was sort of, you know, attached to all these other factors. Um, and then the, the really big thing that everyone kept kind of pointing to was the pandemic and how that sort of accelerated burnout. And then also just like made, made a lot of teachers who were at that sort of that critical point of like being experienced teachers who maybe were thinking about what was next to just say, I'm, I'm out. It was sort of like the, the giant fire that caused the massive burnout all at once, um, which uh, from some of the people I spoke to seemed to be like the teacher shortage was simmering and it was a problem that was coming. And some of us should have seen it coming more, but the pandemic sort of just like knocked it out of the water in terms of like, now this is a crisis right this second. And the burnout was something that came up that like, it was, it was going to be there. And it just, instead of a few people trickling out every year, it was like, now we have this massive exodus. Rabbi Sinkovich, as somebody who's been involved in teacher mentoring and teaching and administering schools for so long, what would you say? How would you recommend that teachers avoid burnout, which obviously is leading to some of the problems we've discussed? Well, you have to change what you're doing. You have to keep working on new things. If you just keep doing what you've done and you see it more like now it's a responsibility and you don't have flights of fancy that you can carry out, then it can get very tedious. And because you're, you're again, you're not in it for the money. So uh, at least I hope not. Um, and then I think that's the best cure is to be constantly creative. And I'm saying this is, you know, like I'm basically done now. So I'm not teaching more. I'm not administering more. I'm just making comments. But, you know, it's not something that I'm leaving without regret. I would, you know, there'll be days I will wake up next year and say, gosh, I miss teaching. On the other hand, at the same time, I won't miss teaching five days a week, because to me at this point, that's a burden. And so it's, I think it's, it's something that somebody has to look at themselves as a creative force. You lose that and you lose your ability to teach others to be creative forces. And that's why we're there for the students. Olivia, how do you maintain that passion? 
I tend to be an optimistic person. Like when I see a problem, I tend to look at it and think, how can we solve this? Like, where do we go from here? How do we make this better? And uh, it's not that I think that I'm going to have this one size fits all solution, but it's, I think of the small things that we can do because I think that's a lot better. It gives you agency. It gives you a sense of control. There is something, even if it's small, that I can do. So in terms of burnout and also passion, I really think that having the school prioritize knowing each teacher as a unique person is the best way to prevent it, right? If I had administrators who I felt truly wanted what was best for me and wanted my growth, um, and when I say I, I don't mean I personally, I mean like in general, as all teachers, speaking as a teacher, um, then I would have conversations with them like, you know, where do you see yourself in five years and how can we help you get there? And if where I saw myself was like, I want to grow my impact and my long-term goal would be to you know, teach a thousand students or something, then that wouldn't, that shouldn't be viewed as a threat. Like that should instead be viewed as, okay, so like, how do we, how do we help you grow? How do we get you to become that person? And so I think creating that culture shift of, I want to know who you are. I want to know what makes you tick. I want to help you be the most successful, you know, Jewish ambassador for, for the entire Jewish people that you can be, whether it's at my school or whether it's somewhere else, like that would just be a very trust-filled and loving and supportive culture. And it's the kind of culture that I think we as teachers are trying to create for our own students. Because when I walk into a classroom, I'm teaching the students that are in front of me, they're gonna be different ones every year and they're all gonna have their unique paths, but hopefully no matter their path, Judaism will be very important to them and like God will be really important to them. So I think it's the same. And so for me, it's, it's about, you know, I try to come each year and see who's in front of me and tailor what I'm doing, even if it's the same curriculum or content, to be a little bit different to hopefully reach that group of kids um, that I have, which uh, which is it keeps me on my toes, you know, keeps me a little bit creative, figuring stuff out. And uh, and I also have to feel if there comes a point where I feel stale or stagnant, then I, I think that it's not wrong for a teacher to pivot to something else, which some teachers are doing. If a teacher feels like they can serve the Jewish people better in a different role or a different form of education, maybe that is where they should go. Maybe they should even be encouraged to go there. Pesach? I, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm incredibly thankful that burnout is not one of the things, you know, that, that I that I struggle with. I mean, I I used to think, you know, again, that's, I started out in, as an NCSY advisor and somehow made the early mistake thinking that that's what Jewish education was going to be about and very quickly learned that it was not. And But I used to be afraid that, you know, okay, you know, now I'm young, now I could, you know, throw around the football and sit on the floor during the Kumsitz and do all these kind of things. And what's going to happen when, you know, I get older and I lose that and I'm the age of the parents or I'm getting older than the age of the parents. And and, and one of the things that, thank God, I've, you know, discovered now in my, my early 50s is that if you really love what you're doing, you love the kids, you love, as you, you know, as I think Rabbi Sunkid said, you know, the or, or, or Rabbi Khan, actually, you mentioned it, you know, the loving watching kids learn and grow and everything like that. I mean, you know, I, I can't imagine ever getting burned out. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know, talk to me in 20 years, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's, and, and then you throw in also, I mean, I happen to be in a situation, you know, I mean, it's so much of what we spoke about. Um, the head of the middle school where I am is a woman and she came from within the ranks of the school and she and the assistant principal of the middle school are people who, who care about us. You know, like that was one of the things I, I remember I, I, I went in after the, after one, you know, the big year of COVID and just said, you know, whatever we went through this year, we knew, you know, you guys were in the trenches with us. I, I think when you are in a place where, again, where there is respect, where they do know you, where there's not these walls, where you're sort of, um, where, you, where you're valued, as Olivia is saying, where they do have a sense of who you are, where, you know, in my case, I was given the opportunity to develop this Hashkafa class. 
it, it just, you know, that's the thing. I mean, in the, in the end of the day, you know, that w- what keeps me going, you know, I mean, uh, is, is, is the fact that it, it's just, it's the best job in the world. I, I walk in happy. I walk out happy. Um, I mean, don't talk to me when I'm in traffic on the way home, but I'm saying, but the, but the experience of being with kids, you know, yeah, I'm glad when the summer comes and I get a little bit of downtime, um, but I, but I miss it. I, I, I mean, there's something, I mean, uh, you know, again, I think that's one of the reasons Olivia and I, you know, like, you know, we connected as educators. I mean, it's just, if you really love what you're doing with the kids, I, I don't know. I, I just can't imagine, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, the financial challenges, whatever it is, they are, they're, they're there and they're real, but in the end of the day, it's the greatest thing in the world to do. Wow. Well, I'm really happy that we ended on that nice positive note. And uh, I want to thank all four of you. First of all, Olivia and, and Pesach, you obviously are just such amazing teachers. Your students are very, very lucky to have you. I was lucky to have Rabbi Sinkovich as my teacher and as my Rebbe, so I know what an amazing teacher he was. And I want to thank Rachel as well, Rachel Schwarzberg, for writing this article and bringing this subject to a much bigger audience. So thank all of you for joining me today. This is really important, and hopefully we can do it again. Thank you. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.